Daniel 7 says, I kept looking in the night vision and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like the Son of Man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and, king, and glory and a kingdom. And all the peoples and nations and men of every tribe, every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. And although those words were written by Daniel, and we'll see those actually next week in next week's message, Lord willing, it sounds like they could be out of the book of Revelation, which is the book you were in last week with Sean. And it's because we're doing these two books together. We're nine weeks into this study that, that where God takes in these two great books of the Bible and he pulls back the veil and shows us what's to come. The question becomes, as we look around in this world now with the veil not pulled back, and we look around at what's going on in our homes or our lives, our marriages, our family, our nation, and we start going, has God lost control? Like we start to wonder, and that's part of why God gave us these books, Daniel and Revelation, because it helps us remember that God is still on his throne. He is not nearly as surprised by things as we are, right? And that we can take great confidence in the fact that he has a plan that he is working out. In a world that is going to hell, we can keep our eyes fixed on heaven because we have him as our savior. And that's what this book is going to show us. Daniel helps us see how now we should live. The book of Daniel was written 600 years roughly, five to 600 years before Christ, because it spans quite a period of time. But it was written for the same reason that Revelation was written by John. It's because God's people had become lukewarm. And God almost literally spit them out of his mouth. They said, if you want to, he said, you want to live like the world, I'm going to let you. I'm going to let the world come get you. And so Daniel was written to try to encourage God's people to live for him. Just like Revelation is written to encourage us now in a society, even a church culture, that is getting lukewarm. And we saw in Revelation chapter 3 what God does to the lukewarm church. What's going on in the world in the time that Daniel's in, because that's where we'll be today, is the Assyrian Empire had taken over most of what was Israel. The ten northern tribes had all been captured. He said, God says, I'm going to raise up Babylon, another world power, and they're going to come and conquer Assyria. And that's the, that is where Daniel finds himself. That's when Daniel and the, um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are taken, and they're taken as young as, as youth and they're trained in the, in the kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar and in the Babylonian Empire. What we're going to see today is there's a transition now during the book of Daniel where God raises up the Persian Empire and a man named Cyrus to come and conquer the Babylonians. And why I share all that isn't just as a history lesson, but it's to say our God is so in control of what's going on in the world, he is the one who raises up and brings down nations. Right? He is the one who instill or who put, I mean, the Proverbs says that the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. The heart of the president of the United States is in the hand of the Lord, and he will turn it whichever way he wishes. We have to deal with that reality, because that's the truth, and we're going to see that today. What these books were written for, what Daniel was written for, was to wake us up from our slumber as we look at how do we live in this tension? Because, because we're stuck in this tension of living between like this, okay, I, I get what we just sang, that the finished work on the cross, what Jeff reminded us of during the invocation, that Christ's work on the cross was finished, but I just don't feel finished yet. 
So that's why we're calling this series already, or, or already finished. The work is finished on the cross, but not yet done. Because it's not going to be done until he comes back and establishes his kingdom perfectly in the end. In Revelation 1, which is where we started, we saw the full revelation of Jesus. White hair, eyes aflame, tongue like a sword. Right? Did not how he looked when he walked around here. And then in Revelation 2 and 3, we went through and we saw how what, what God is doing right now on the earth is the church. We are what the Holy Spirit is doing in the church right now, or in, in the world right now. We are to be the hands and feet of Jesus Christ. And that was in Revelation 2 and 3, Christ's message to his churches. And then in Daniel chapters 1 through 4, we took a step and we, we looked, started looking at Daniel and we said, how do people live in a world as exiles? Because that's what we are. Peter tells us that the church today, we're hopeful exiles. This world is not our home. Right? We're looking forward to a better world. Praise the Lord. And then last week, Sean shared a glimpse of glory in Revelation 4, and we get this picture of what worship looks like. And today we're going to look at Daniel chapters 5 and 6, so we have quite a bit to talk about today, and look at how we can live now humbly, even as he exalts us in his glory. The remarkable thing about Daniel is, is one of the things I always found really remarkable about him is he, in the midst of all of this world turmoil and, and Assyria being taken over by Babylon and Babylon being taken over by Persia, Daniel finds himself in a place of leadership in all of these kingdoms with all of these kings. What would normally have happened is he would have been killed and new people would have been brought in. And yet because he was so humble... God exalted him to places of power in each of these world powers that came up, and we're going to see that today. How does that happen? Well, it doesn't happen by exalting yourself. It happens by exalting God. So what we're going to look at today is the question today is, what is the reward for humility? What is the reward for humility? And I'm going to give you the answer right up front. Here's the outline for the message today. The answer right so you, but you can't leave. So here's the outline for today. When we recognize our, that we have pride-filled hearts and we make room for grace to do its work, we will live lives that bring God glory. That's the reward for humility. Now what's that, what does that look like? Well, we're going to open up our Bibles to Daniel chapter 5. So Daniel is towards the middle third of your Bible. So if you go to, um, if you open up your Bible in the middle, it'll probably fall open to Psalms. Go to the right, you'll get to some big books like Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel's after that. If you get to a bunch of books that you can't pronounce, you've gone too far and back up a little bit. And we're going to start in Daniel chapter 5 with our first point. What's the reward for humility? Well, when we recognize our pride-filled hearts. I'm going to teach a little differently. Normally we go pretty much verse by verse through whatever chapter we're in. Because this is a historical narrative, there's a lot of information here. So you're going to have to really work to follow along with me because I'm going to be taking out chunks and just kind of telling the story as we go. So, so follow along and we'll start, in, we'll start in the easy spot. Chapter 1, verse 1. I'm sorry, chapter 5, verse 1. It says, Belshazzar the king held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles, and he was drinking wine in the presence of the thousand. Now, Belshazzar is a new king. We left, when we left Daniel, we had Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar died in about 560, 565 BC. This is now 25 years later, King Belshazzar has been raised up as king. It is actually Nebuchadnezzar's great, or Nebuchadnezzar's grandson. 
is, is the king in the area at this point. He was the son of King Nebuchadnezzar, who was actually out fighting the Persians as he is staying home in Babylon and ruling the kingdom not well. What ends up happening in the next few verses is he has this huge party. The Persian Empire is literally, I mean, this, guys, and this, his, this history is not just biblical history. This, this history is found in extra-biblical literature all over the place. Right? And so, so what's happening is, so get the scene. So here's Belshazzar. He's been left to be king in this region of Babylon. The Persian Empire is taking over the world. This, that's what's modern-day Iran. They're taking over the world at this point, and this king decides he is so arrogant about the defenses of Babylon because they were world-known. They had, they had something like um, 700 towers around their capital city to try to thwart the enemy. They had these massive walls, and then inside those walls, they had walls that would keep the enemy out. So he is so pridefully arrogant that as the Persian Empire has surrounded the capital, he decides it's a great time to throw a party and get drunk. And not only does he throw a party and get drunk, he actually has his people go and get the implements from God's temple. So, so back in chapter 1, Nebuchadnezzar takes over Jerusalem. He destroys the temple of God. He takes all of the bowls and the scepters and the glasses that were made to worship the Lord. He takes them back to Babylon. But because Nebuchadnezzar honored God, he never used them. This punk, Belshazzar, is like, you know what, I'm so arrogant. Hey, go get me those things that my grandfather would never use. I want to use those. And he starts drinking from them. And then look at verse 4. It says, They drank the wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. So they're using implements that were made to worship God, and yet they're praying to pagan gods, gods of gold and silver. This is not a good situation. Now, but guys, before we throw Belshazzar under the bus, we need to ask ourselves a question. What do we do with the things that we have in our midst? If you've been, if you've been gift, I mean, if you, if you have life and breath, you've been given a gift. If you have stuff that's all belongs to the Lord, you've been given a gift. What are we doing with that stuff? Who are we honoring? Who are we exalting? Is it us? Because that's what Belshazzar is all about. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to throw the best party these people have ever seen because I want to honor me. But are we doing that? Are we honoring, are we, are we exalting our family? Are we exalting our business? Or are we using our stuff, the implements that we have been given by God, to glorify Him? And you're going to hear me say this over and over today, but, but guys, it's, it's so easy to look at people like Belshazzar and go, man, that poor guy just didn't get it. We need, when I really started to realize I was, I was starting to get it as a believer in Jesus, is when I started reading these things in the Old Testament going, I'm Belshazzar. Apart from the grace of God, that's me. And we're going to look at that as we go along. So what happens now is the queen, who's probably Belshazzar's mom, not his wife, comes and says, hey, there's a guy who can tell you some things about what's going on in your life, right? Because he, what, what's happened is, look at verse 5. Suddenly, the fingers of a man's hand emerge and begin writing opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace, and the king saw the back of the hand that was doing the writing. So he's having this party, blaspheming God. This hand comes out of the wall and starts to write something. It actually goes on to basically say that he wet his pants. 
that he wet himself. He was so scared. Mom comes and says, son, you don't need to be scared. There's this guy, his name is Daniel. Your grandfather used to bring him in and he would tell you what this stuff that's written means. Because of course, what Belshazzar does is he brings all of his wise men in and says, tell me what this means and I will exalt you. I will, I will give you gifts. And, and none of them, of course, can figure it out. So, she, so mom comes and saves him and says, go get Daniel. So Daniel comes in, jump down to verse 13. Then Daniel was brought in before the king, and the king spoke and said to Daniel, Are you that Daniel who is the one of the exiles from Judah, whom my father the king brought from Judah? How does he not know? Daniel was second in command under his grandfather. It's because he didn't want to be bothered with these foreigners. He didn't want to be bothered with those people. He was so caught up in himself, he didn't even realize who Daniel was. And now it's in verse 14. Now I have heard about you and your spirit of God, and the spirit of the gods is in you, and that illumination, insight, and extraordinary wisdom have been found in you. And then he promises, so if you'll tell me what the hand, what the hand just wrote in the wall, I will give you a bunch of gifts. I will exalt you. And look at Daniel's answer, verse 17. Then Daniel answered and said to him, keep your gifts for yourself, or give them to someone else. However, I will read the inscription to the king and make the interpretation known to you. Take a minute here and just say, guys, Daniel, Daniel had to live ready. Because one of the things I didn't mention earlier was when we last left Daniel, right, he was telling Nebuchadnezzar dreams. Daniel, as, as a young man, maybe, a, maybe in his mid-30s, years have passed. Daniel is now probably 60-something maybe 70 years old at this point. He never knew when something like this was going to happen, when he was going to be summoned into the presence of the king and his life was going to depend on whether he gave an answer or not. The man, had, Daniel, had to live ready all the time. But it was easy for Daniel because that's just who he was. He didn't just start praying once the king told him, hey, can you tell me what this dream means? He was just a man of prayer. It was just who he was. And you see where that goes for us as believers. Is, are we living ready? Right? Jesus, over and over, he's like, guys, you got to live ready. You never know when I'm going to come back. Are we living ready? Or are we waiting for those moments where we start to get really scared, really nervous, and then we dive into the Word, and then we pray, and then are, are you putting your faith and your trust in worldly things? Like Belshazzar brought in his, his wise men and said, hey, guys, help us figure this out. Is that what you're doing? Is that what, are, are you looking at secular books to help you figure out your spiritual problems? I'm not anti-medication, but are you praying? If you have a headache, are you taking an Advil and then praying, or are you praying and then taking an Advil? Are you spending time in God's Word, praying, and among God's people as a way to make sure that you're always living ready? Daniel was not practicing civil disobedience when he looked at the king and said, just keep your stuff. He wasn't, sticking his, he wasn't thumbing his nose at the king. He was just being who he was. That's what we could do a better job of as Christians. Right? We are really well known for what we're against. All of a sudden something happens and we don't like, you know, we don't like some decision that was made in politics or whatever it is, and now we're going to boycott Right? And, 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 we're, and, and we we're really known for that. But part of our problem is our witness prior to that has been so weak 
that people start to go, I wonder, what, what, what in the world's going on? I'll give you a great example, guys. The, the, the attack on, we just had our marriage conference. It was an amazing time. We had 70-something people there. We had an awesome time. The what we talked a little bit about was the attack on marriage. You all, you're all, I mean, you can't live in this country and not see how marriage has been changed. Guys, that is not the fault. The, the fact that marriage has been changed, we need to point the finger at us, not at the homosexual community. You know why? Because back in the 80s, the church ran to a thing called no-fault divorce. The church did, not society. The church decided that it was okay to get divorced for any reason, and you're still just part of the body of Christ. You, you, don't, even have to, you don't even have to go before your church and talk to them about it. That is an un... Guys, I, I know there are people here who have been divorced. There are reasons to be divorced. There are, is grace in that covers those things. I'm just telling you that what our problem was... So now, here's what's happened. Now we're going, you know what? This homosexual marriage is, is unbiblical, and it's wrong, and it is and we will stand against it at Cornerstone, but what, they'll, but what they are coming back with is, well, apparently, according to your word, so is divorce, but you guys bought into that hook, line, and sinker. Our witness, the thing that made Daniel so amazing was his witness was so powerful all the time, not just when it had to be. And that's what we could do a better job of. Let's pick it up in verse 22. So after Daniel reminds Nebuchadnezzar of all the things that God did to his grandfather, how he humbled him, how, how eventually Nebuchadnezzar repented, look at verses 22 and 23. He says, Yet you, his son, which is a, a, a way of saying descendant, Yet you, his descendant, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, even though you knew all this, but you exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven. Because do you see what he, he's looking at? He's saying, he's saying, here's your problem, Belshazzar. You know the truth. Your grandfather knew the truth. And you're denying the truth and blaspheming God. And then he goes on to say, and they have brought the vessels of the house before, of his house before you, and you and your nobles and your wives and your, and your concubines have been drinking wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver and gold and bronze and iron and wood and stone, which you do not, which do not see, hear, or understand, but the God in whose hand are your life and breath, your, are, are, are your life, your breath, and your ways, you have not glorified him. He's saying, you're, you're throwing this huge party. You know, you know you, your grandfather knew there was a God in heaven who was in control of everything. You're throwing this huge party, praying to other gods, living your life the way you want to live it, and you know better. Guys, I have to ask myself that question. Like, how, off, I, how often am I doing things that I frankly just know better? And Why? The answer is because Belshazzar is a case study in what pride can do to a person. Belshazzar is, and pride is, Christ, pride was the original sin. Pride is what made Lucifer fall. Pride is what allowed him to lure Adam and Eve in the garden because they wanted to be exalted like God because Lucifer, Satan, wanted to be exalted like God. 
Pride is at the heart of every one of our sin issues. And all sin issues are worship issues. The problem is, what we're doing is we're worshiping the wrong entity. Instead of worshiping God, we're worshiping ourselves. What Belshazzar is doing is he's worshiping himself with the things that were given to him meant to worship God. Do I do that? Do you do that? Have you been given stuff or just even given the gift of salvation and yet you're worshiping yourself with it instead of, with, instead of worshiping God with it? One of the things that God hit me with as I was studying for this message this last week was as, as, I was as I was just being ripped apart about my own prideful arrogance because I am a prideful, I, that, was my, that was what kept me from Christ for 24 years as a young man and it's what keeps me sinning today is I am just a prideful pig. I am. And, what he, and, I, and, I, and one of the things that God hit me with was I, I, I almost audibly heard him say, Doug, how many times do I have to show myself strong in your life before You'll just submit. And sadly, the answer is apparently one more. All the time. And I don't like this word. I hate that about myself. Somebody gave me a book in college as an unbeliever, Mere Christianity. And one of the things in that book, that one of the things that God used, that was C.S. Lewis's book. It's an amazing read about the proof of why Christianity is true. And one of the, but one of the things about that is he doesn't start with Jesus. He just starts with God, right and wrong. And one of the things that struck me was, he has, there's a quote in there where he says something to the effect of, pride is the complete anti-God state of mind. Until you see God, as, as a being in every way bigger than yourself, and you as nothing in comparison, you've seen, you have not seen God at all, is what C.S. Lewis said. And I, and I look at my life and I go, how many times am I, am I still guilty of that? How many times do I fall into that trap? The answer is, apparently, sadly, one more time. The New Testament is really clear. God humbles the proud, and he exalts the humble. Right? In James chapter 4, James says this, but he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Peter says a similar thing in 1 Peter 5. He says, God resists the proud, gives grace to the humble, the enemy is, roaring, is prowling around, roaring like a lion, looking for those to devour, and he knows that the easiest hook he has for us is to just feed our prideful selves. And he says, resist him, and he will flee you. And it's interesting how our story is going to end today with, G with Daniel in the lion's den. So let's pick it up in verse 24. It says, then the hand was, that was, this hand that was sent, so this hand comes out of the wall, starts writing on here. Here's what the hand wrote, verse 25. This is the inscription that was written. Mene, Mene, Tekal, Perez. Or that first part of that word is parasin. This is the interpretation of the message. Mene, God has numbered, God has numbered your kingdom and put, you, and put it to an end. Tekal, you have been weighed in the scales and found deficient. Perez, your kingdom has been divided and given over to the Medes and the Persians. Then Belshazzar orders 
the, the, the clothing, that the, these gifts that he was going to give him, of purple and a, and a gold necklace around his neck, be issued to him and, proclaim, and proclamation concerning him that he now had authority over, the, over a third of the kingdom. So he exalts Daniel. It says, that night, Belshazzar the Chaldean king was slain. Now again, before, it's so easy for us, guys, when we look at a verse like verse 27, you have been weighed in the scales and found deficient. It's so easy for us to read that and go, this poor, when did, why, why, didn't he, why did this guy not get it? I, guys, we are all Belshazzar. We have all been weighed, if you've, if you've tuned out because I've lost you in the history or whatever, just listen, we have all been weighed in the scales and found wanting. Every one of us. Romans 3 is really clear. There are none good. No, not one. When we put ourselves up against a completely righteous, holy God, on that scale system, we cannot, we have to be found wanting. Except for one thing. The priceless worth of Jesus Christ. When, when that weight gets put on the scale for on our behalf, all of a sudden, guess what happens? We're down here. Bam. Right? Because he took it, the scales are completely in our favor now. Not by our worth, but because of his worth. But we don't really get that so well. Right? Anything apart from acknowledging that, guys, is pride. And we all struggle with it. Then in verse 31 it says, Then Darius the Mede received the kingdom at about the age of 62. And Darius was a co-regent of Cyrus who was the king of Persia. And I'm not going to go, I know I've spent a lot of time on history already, but I'm not going to go, but I think it's important for you to understand something here. Because this is, I mean, how God is in control. So the Babylonians have ruled. Belshazzar is killed that night. A hundred years earlier, through the prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah, it's going to come 44, 28, God says this, 150 years before that moment, it is I who says of Cyrus, calls him by name way before the man was ever born. He is my shepherd and he will perform all my desires. And he declares to Jerusalem, she will be rebuilt and the temple, your foundation will be laid. Now here's a 30 second version of the history of that. When the Babylonians take God's people away, Jeremiah, who's a prophet back in Jerusalem when, when Daniel was taken to Babylon, he says, you're going to be there for 70 years, Daniel. Right? And and guess what happened? And then you're going to be returned. 150 years before that, God says, this man Cyrus is going to be the one that does it. And guess who does? Guess who gives the decree 70 years after they were taken to Babylon to allow the people to return to rebuild the temple under Zerubbabel? King Cyrus. Right? No matter what's going so what? Here's what. No matter what's going on, no matter how big your enemy is, no matter how strong your problem seems, God is bigger. He's just bigger. And we need to trust him for that. And then what happens is, at the start of chapter 6, God, or, um, Darius, this co-regent leader for Cyrus, raises Daniel up to be the head of all of the wise people in the area. They immediately get jealous all, these are people he saved. Daniel's prophecy saved his co-workers. 
they immediately get jealous that he's put over them and they decide we got to trap him. And the only way we're going to be able to trap him is if we make some kind of rule that makes him come up against his God because it seems to be the only thing he really stands for. So they say, we can't, you can't pray to anybody else but the king. So look at verse, well, let me back up a step because I'm, I'm trying to skip ahead. I know I'm going long. Question today is what is the reward for humility? The first thing is, we have to recognize our prideful heart. The second thing is we have to make room for God's grace to work. Now watch how God's grace works in Daniel's life. Look at verse 10 of chapter 6. Now when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, so, so, these, so his co-workers turn against him, they get the king to, to make this ridiculous proclamation, and it says, he entered his house on the roof chamber, he had windows open towards Jerusalem, and he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day. Do you see what it says there? Continued kneeling. He didn't go, you know what, I'm going to show you guys, I'm going to boycott. He just went about, he was just living his life. This is what Daniel did every day, and a rule that the king made was not going to make him do any different. He's like, this is what I do, so this is what I'm going to do. So he goes up there, he kneels, he prays, they see him, they come and report it to the king, and they say, oh, by the way, king, do you remember that rule you made? Anybody that prays to somebody besides you has to be thrown in the lion's den. And in the Medo-Persian Empire, once a king made a rule, it was non-revocable. The king doesn't want to throw him away. He spends all night agonizing about how I can get Daniel out of this. He can't figure out a way out of it. So he's like, all right, here we go, Daniel. And if you look at verse 16, the king gave orders and Daniel was brought in and cast in the lion's den. And the king spoke and said to him, God, your God, whom you constantly serve, will be able to deliver you. And a stone was set in front of the lion's den. And the king went to his palace, verse 18, and spent all night there fasting. So he, he didn't want to see this happen, but he couldn't figure out a way out of it. The king rose early, verse 19, to run to the den, to run there. He runs up there. In verse 20, it says, when the king... Or, when he had come near to the den, he cried out in a troubled voice, Daniel, servant of the living God. Well, let me just stop right there. Wouldn't that be a great epitaph on your tombstone? Like, this is what Daniel's known for by Darius, who he hasn't even been around very long. I mean, he, hasn't, he and Darius have not spent much time together, and already, now it's, it's, some time has passed. So, he, so Daniel, at this point, is probably 80. 80-year-old man. 80-year-old man's thrown into a lion's den. Darius says, Daniel, servant of the living God. Man, I'd, I'd love that written on my tombstone when I go to be with the Lord if he hasn't come back by then. He says, whom you constantly serve, has he been able to deliver you from the lions? This 80-year-old man is in a pit with lions all night long. And all he's doing the whole time, you know, is exalting Christ. Now look at verse 21. Then Daniel spoke to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth. And then it says, They have not harmed me inasmuch as it was found, I was found innocent before you. I've committed no crime. He's saying, King, I didn't do anything wrong. God sent it. So, so here's this picture of the lions. So this old man standing in front of the lions. Here's my question. 
Why do you think the lions aren't attacking Daniel? Well, it tells us why, right? An angel has come. This is what's standing behind Daniel. Imagine, imagine that scene, guys. No matter what the enemy is, that's why the, the lions are cowering. Because an angel of the Lord has come, and he's a scary being. I mean, that, that picture doesn't really do, he doesn't look that scary. Every time someone sees an angel of the Lord in the Bible, they fall flat on their face. He's standing behind Daniel saying, look, kiddies, back up. Right? He's mine. He's not yours. So they pull Daniel out of the pit. Praise the Lord. Awesome. He immediately takes all the people that were against Daniel. He throws them in the pit. And these lions were so trained to eat people that it says that they actually crushed the bones of the people that were thrown in the pit before they hit the bottom. Like as soon as those people were in, no angel to protect them, bam, they are lunch. What's the difference? The difference is God was on Daniel's side and oh, by the way, Daniel was on his. So guys, that picture, that's what grace looks like. In your life, practically speaking, like what grace looks like to us is God showing up and doing what only God can do for your good and for his glory. So the next time you are in a situation where you're like, ah, trust the grace of God. That's what it looks like to, when it says God humbles the proud and gives grace to the humble. That's what grace to the humble looks like. So I said, the point today is, what is the reward for humility? When we recognize, first we have to recognize that we have pride-filled hearts, and, and that's a hard place for us to get sometimes. Make room for grace to do its work, and then live lives that bring glory to God. Look at how our story ends at the end of the chapter. Verse 25. People are always watching us, guys. It says, when Darius the king wrote, he sees what happens. He's like, okay, wait a second. It's not just that the lions were sleeping. It's not just that they were well fed because they destroyed the guys I just threw down there. Something obviously happened. It says, when he saw this, the nations of every man, he, he writes this saying, he writes another decree, sort of like his, or sort of like Nebuchadnezzar did. All the peoples and nations of every tribe and tongue who are living in the land may peace abound. I make a decree that all the, all the dominion of my kingdom, men are to fear and tremble before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and enduring forever. His kingdom is the one that will not be destroyed and his dominion will be forever. This is a pagan king saying this. He delivers and rescues and performs signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. Who has also delivered Daniel from the power of the lions? So this Daniel enjoyed success in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Why was Daniel exalted to these places of power? Not because he's like, hey, look at me, look at me, look at me. It's because he was going, look at God, look at God, look at God. God raised Daniel up because, God was, because Daniel was flat on his face before the Lord. If you're sitting in your, in, right, in your current place of work, 
situations at home, wherever it might, with your, whatever it is, and you're going, I, I don't feel like I'm being treated fairly, justly. I don't feel like, whatever your struggle is, ask yourself the, the question, is my heart to exalt me or is my heart in this to exalt Christ? Because if it's not to exalt Christ, why would God help us? Because that's who he's interested in exalting is his son. So the question today I'm going to ask you just to ponder one more time as the music team comes up and the lights come down. What is the reward for humility? It's not always rescue in this present day. Was Daniel any less a man of God if the lions had eaten him? The answer is no. And he'd still be in glory. But the reward for humility isn't revenge. Like we tend to think present day, like, like just give me revenge. Maybe give me riches. You know, Lord, I'm following hard after you every day. I'm in the word all the time. Like Pastor Doug says, I'm doing these things and I'm still broke. My marriage is still struggling. Right? God doesn't say I'm still tired. I'm still sick. God doesn't tell us that we're always going to be delivered until the end. Right, guys, the ultimate reward for humility, here's what it is. It's God. Right, the ultimate reward for humility is him. Not his stuff. It's the giver, not the gift. He doesn't promise us a bunch of gifts. In fact, he says a lot of the opposite stuff as Christians. But what he promises is himself now and in eternity. That's the, that is the promise of humility. Just himself. We cannot possibly see him if all we're doing is looking in the mirror all the time. If my idol of me is bigger than him, I can't get past me to get to him. And I confess before you that that's my, that is a struggle. Even today, as I, as I just was exhausted, I'm, I, I, I was so convicted. I'm like, get over yourself. Like, seriously, man, get over yourself. This has nothing, this has nothing to do with you. This is the word of God and the spirit of God and the people of God. Just get over it. And he's so faithful. Guys, we cannot possibly see the glory of God unless we get on our faces. That's where we see him. On our faces before the Lord. That's when we have no place else to go. And we just go, okay, Lord. I have no place else to look but you. We will behold the glory of God. David writes this in Psalm 149, and I close this. It says, For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adorns the humble with salvation. Let the godly exalt in glory. He exalts us to exalt himself in us and through us. Let's pray. 
So Father, I just thank you, Lord, for that truth. I thank you for, the, I thank you for an example of a man like Daniel um, who just lived ready. He didn't wait until those moments where he's about to get thrown in a lion's den to finally turn to you, but he was just prepared. Because he knew you. And he knew your heart. And he knew your heart for him. And he knew your propensity to exalt yourself. Because you are the only one worthy of exaltation. And so, Lord, I want to pray that we would live lives like that. That we would live lives where we're, where we're ready. Where we would be ready to give a reason for the hope that we have with gentleness and patience. Not because we're studied up, but because we're prayed up. Because we look like your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, I, I pray for my own prideful heart and for the hearts in this room where we all struggle. Lord, I pray that you would show us the idols of self and pride. We are all little idol factories. We are all drinking of cups of gold and silver and praising them as gods. And the worst part is when we, when we do that, we can do that to our own destruction by, by, by never getting past that and looking at you. So Lord, I want to pray that you would show us just the beauty and the majesty and the glory that is you and your son, Jesus Christ. I pray in the name of Jesus that you would, that you would free us from the bondage of us, of self, that we would live for Christ. It's in his name I pray. Amen.